true church. He hears us when we call. So let's call to a listening God, shall we? Father, we, we do that just now. We call out in prayer to you. We call out to give you praise first and foremost. To worship you for who you are. You are the holy, righteous, just God of all power, all knowledge. God of infinite love, abounding grace. Mercies that are ever new every day. We give you our worship and praise because you are the God that is slow to anger and quick to forgive. Thank you for that reality. I am painfully aware of my need of your forgiveness even here this morning. Thank you for that. Thank you that you are the friend of sinners. Wow, what a truth is in that statement. The holy, holy, holy God is a friend of sinners. You are the God who made a way when there was no way. You're the God that stepped into the impossible as the Messiah, the Savior, and through an humanly unimaginable, unthinkable act. You pursued with the flesh of humanity meshed with your deity. You pursued your own sacrificial cross. That was your way. God on a cross. That just does not compute with our logic but what it does do is it unequivocally cuts right to our heart and compels us to love you because you first loved us and gave yourself up for us And so as we come to you this morning, as a corporate body, we come based upon the merit of Jesus Christ, based upon the holiness of Christ and the sacrifice that Christ paid and the death that he died willingly and the resurrection that he accomplished in victory over death and sin and hell. We come in his name based upon his work. And that causes us to come boldly. We know that there is nothing in us that deserves to come. 
but we come because you bid us come. You call us to come. You long to continually give us all things now that you have given us your son. Thank you. Thank you for that. And Lord, as I pray for this body, I'm just aware every week that we're just a part of a greater body of Christ, the one church that is in this city, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, bought and paid for by his blood, standing upon his truth, and that our brothers and sisters are meeting all over the city this morning in approximately 300 houses of worship, large and small. Bless them, I pray. Meet with them today. Empower those that will be proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let them speak it clearly as they should. Move hearts. Those that are unsaved, open up their eyes to see the truth of the gospel of Jesus. Give them faith to believe. Justify them. Bring them into your kingdom. And Lord, specifically for right here this morning, I just want to commit to you the proclamation of your word that's going to go out from these lips right here. I am aware of my frailty, yet doubly aware of your sufficiency. I'm asking you, Jesus, to pour the person of your Holy Spirit out upon me and through me to communicate accurately and in power the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ this morning and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Keep me out of the way. Prompt my mind with thoughts that I have not thought. I've prepared and I have something to say, but your God... Have your way. Give me the divine unction of your spirit. And Lord, in the heart of every listener, you know each one of them entirely. Speak right to their point of need as you are so faithful in doing and able to do. Do that here today. And I'm asking you, church, just keep your head bowed, your eyes closed. I'm asking you just to tell the Lord. I'm, I am telling the Lord this. The word this morning might be a new word 
a, a new truth, a different truth. Spirit, would you just reveal your truth? And I want to tell you, and I'm encouraging church you to pray this, God, whatever you want to say to me, you say it to me. And I will listen, and I will obey. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. May be seated. What I'm going to do this morning is I am going to really set the stage and introduce the topic that we are launching into here this morning and will be focusing on for the next 22 days. You've been hearing us announce this three-week, four-Sunday program. I think it's called um, A Focus of Prayer and Fasting or Seeking the Face of God in the worship folder there as we've announced that. What I want to do this morning is I want to try to set out for you, explain the purpose behind the focus. I believe that it is the Lord that is leading us to do this. Our elders are in agreement with this. And so I'm asking you to listen attentively and to don't just be a spectator, be a participant and ask the Lord how he wants you to engage in the process over the next 22 days. So it will cover four Sundays, this Sunday and the next three. It'll include two Sunday night gatherings, one tonight and one three weeks from tonight. And then it will include the three Wednesday nights between that first and last Sunday. So I'm asking you to participate in this time of prayer and fasting, this focus of us as a church body seeking the face of God together about something pretty specific. And I'm going to explain and introduce that now. And I want to do that by going to the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. Would you please open there? We have been for about two and a half years on a study of the Paul's letter to the church at Rome. We are pushing pause on that just for the summer with some other things. This being one of them on the agenda, we'll come back to that in September. Pick that back up again in chapter 7. But go to John chapter 1. John, the apostle, one of the twelve, called the disciple whom Jesus loved, the youngest of the twelve, later in his life, he wrote down the gospel of John, the story of Jesus. And what he did in this gospel is that he is talking to us here about the essential nature of of Christianity. He teaches us in this gospel about what it means to be a Christian and how an individual becomes a Christian. 
In fact, John chapter 20, he gives a purpose statement at the end, toward the end of this letter that basically states that. But as he opens up this letter, he begins talking about Jesus. He was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Pointing to the person of Jesus Christ, and then following that introduction, he launches into John the Apostle, launches into a story about John the Baptist, the man who was the forerunner of Christ. And what I want to show you as we begin, is a distinction that he is clear, intentional in pointing out between the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And this is not the only place. We're going to look at several places where this distinction is set forward in a very straight clear manner, very clearly and intentionally given by God so that we would see it, given repeatedly several times so that we would see it, understand it, believe it, and act upon it. John was, John the Baptist, this wild-eyed, matted hair, uh, camel's clothing, Locust in the teeth and honey on the lips kind of a guy was a fiery preacher. And people flocked to hear him. At one point, he was so influential that the Jewish leader sent a delegation to him and said, are you the one? Are you the Christ? And he said to them, no, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. But he made a very critical statement that I want to zero in on and then expound really for the rest of this message. He said, first of all, in the 11th, 12th, 13th verse... And the 16th verse of chapter 1, he kind of set out the purpose behind which Jesus came. And he said there that Jesus came so that we would have the right to become children of God. That we would have the right to be born brand new. Not to be people that just had a little bit of our rough edges cleaned up and a little bit better uh, ethical standard by which to live. But he came so that he could give us a brand new existence. A brand new identity as children of God. And then in verse 16, and from his fullness and from Jesus' fullness, John writes, we have all received grace upon grace. You see, the reason why Jesus Christ came, as John states this in the opening of his letter, is that we would live out of the fullness that Jesus Christ provides. 
experiencing grace upon grace. And then comes the question. As his popularity grows, John the Baptist, are you the one? And he says in verse 26, I baptize with water. He said, I'm not the Christ, but here's his reply. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Verse 33, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Let me just stop you there for a minute. Did you hear the contrast, the distinction that the Apostle John wrote quoting John the Baptist? John the Baptist highlighting, designating, showing the distinction between his ministry, his baptism, and the ministry of Jesus and his baptism. John said, I baptize with water, but there is someone coming, Jesus, who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's not the only time that's said. It's said several times. Let me just show you one more. This is written in Luke's gospel. Luke, the physician, the same author who wrote Acts, which we're going to look at in a minute, In the beginning chapters of Luke's gospel, listen to the same story here again. Luke chapter 3, verse 3, And John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John's baptism, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But again, people ask, are you the Christ? Luke chapter 3, verse 16. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. Listen for the distinction. Repeat it here again. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but one who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John makes this contrast between his ministry and the ministry of Jesus Christ. He says, I baptize with water. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus Christ is coming. And his baptism is not a baptism with water. It's a baptism with the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit distinction between my ministry, John the Baptist said, and the ministry of Jesus. Gospels point that out in several locations. It's an oft-repeated, redundant truth shared. Folks, that tells me that there is something critical in that truth. God doesn't do anything without a reason. And I am 100% convinced that what I am holding in my hand is the inspired word of God. And what is in here 
Every word that is in here is in there for a reason. A divine intent put it there. And so, the Spirit who inspired John as he wrote and Luke as he wrote made it a point to say there's a difference, there's a distinction. And I want you to know what it is. Don't miss it. There is the baptism of John under the, unto repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And there's the baptism of Jesus in which he baptizes his people with the Holy Spirit. Distinction. But the only place that that is stated and repeated is not just in the beginning of these two Gospels. It's repeated also as the book of Acts opens up. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Listen again as the very same distinction is made. This is referring to Jesus and his teaching to his apostles just before his, this is after his death and resurrection, prior to his ascension back to the throne of heaven, Acts chapter 1, 4, and 5. And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, here it comes, Listen carefully, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Distinction, baptism of John, baptism of Jesus. And then the storyline that follows in the book of Acts is really a story about the unfolding of the promise of Jesus fulfilling what he said that he would do, that he would baptize his people with the Spirit, that he would pour his Spirit out upon his people, and what would happen to them when he did so, and what they would do in the world as a result of that. That's the story of Acts. It just tells that unfolding tale about this explosion of the first church as the Spirit of God was sent from Jesus, poured out upon the church, and they were transformed by that and went out and turned the world upside down. That's the story of Acts. So I'm just wanting to point out this oft-repeated, divinely inspired, clearly stated distinction that is made from the very lips of John the Baptist and then through the writing of John the Apostle and Luke the Apostle and from the very words of Jesus himself. That's a, that's a pretty big four right there. There is a baptism of John unto repentance, a baptism of water unto repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There's a baptism of Jesus, a baptism with which he pours out or baptizes his people with the Holy Spirit. Clear distinction made. I can show you some 
other locations. In fact, I could just take you step by step through the book of Acts. But what I want to do for time's sake is I want to jump right to 18 and 19, the 18th and 19th chapter. And we're just going to spend some time now here in the 18th and 19th chapter. What happens here, back to back, with no space between them, are two stories. Chapter 18 ends with one story. Chapter 19 opens with another. But although they are two distinct stories, they teach the same identical truth. And it's highlighting the very same distinction that I have been explaining. Go to Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Here's the setup. Paul is traveling from city to city preaching, sometimes by sandal, sometimes by sail. He's on his missionary journey and on one of those sailing trips from port to port to carry the good news to another location. He has with him Aquila and Priscilla, a husband and wife who are tent makers. They are traveling with Paul. They are joining him in his ministry. They are assisting him in the work that he is doing. And they come here to Ephesus and they spend a number of months there doing incredibly effective ministry. And then after a period of time, Paul leaves, but he has Aquila, the tent maker, and his wife Priscilla remain in Ephesus. And then at the end of chapter 18, following Paul's departure, a man by the name of Apollos comes to Ephesus. And Apollos, like Paul, is a preacher for the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes preaching the truth about Jesus Christ. And he's a Jew, and so what a Jew would do is what Apollos did. He went to the synagogue, and he began to teach in the synagogue. And Aquila and his wife Priscilla, these two tent makers by trade, were there in the synagogue, and they heard Apollos preaching about Jesus Christ. There's the setup. Now, what I want to show you in verse 24 through 26, is the noteworthy description that is given of Apollos. It is incredible. Listen to it. Apollos was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. That phrase, the way of the Lord, was used several times Uh, Throughout the New Testament, it is referring to the verbal transmission of truth about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The instruction in the way of the Lord means it is the teaching that Jesus, the very Son of God, came from heaven, took on the form and nature of a human and went to the cross willingly and paid the price for sin, was buried, rose again on the third day, just like he said that he would, and ascended back into heaven. 
That is all a part of the verbal instruction of the teaching of the way and that the only way for us to be saved is simply to believe in what Jesus has done. And Apollos had been instructed in that way. Keep going. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. There's a lot of stuff I could draw out, but let me just pull a couple of noteworthy things related to our subject here. Priscilla and Aquila sitting there in the synagogue. They were listening to Apollos, this eloquent speaker, this competent, educated, well-versed student of the Old Testament, the scriptures of his day, to this man who taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. But not only that, this was a guy that was fervent in spirit. Here's what I take that to mean. He's not a guy that did something halfway. He was an all-out, pedal-to-the-metal kind of a guy, a little passionate. Maybe a little like me when I go off the handle here on Sunday morning. And not only that, he was courageous, bold, speaking in the synagogue. You know, that could, a Jew doing that, proclaiming Jesus, that could come at a pretty high price. But here's what happened. Priscilla, or Aquila and Priscilla heard him. And here's what they said. There's something missing. There is something missing. And so what they did, I'll go into this in more detail a little bit later, tell you what the missing component was. But Priscilla and Aquila heard him and they waited till he was done and they took him aside and got him some more private and they said to him, Apollos, we want to talk to you for a little while. And in that conversation, to this man who taught the way of Jesus accurately, they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And what happened to him is that his life was changed. The result of that meeting was a transformation. In the very next verse, it says that Apollos greatly helped those who through grace had believed and that he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. There is... An intentional description coming out of this encounter with Aquila and Priscilla that shows that Apollos is now 
walking and working in power and that the things that he is doing is ministering greatly to the believers and reminds me of the statement made about Stephen at his stoning that they could not stand up against the wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. That's what Apollos was doing. He was proving that Jesus was the Christ, powerfully refuting the error of the Jew. Changed man. We're told elsewhere that Paulus went on to have an incredible, powerful ministry for the Lord. In fact, if you read Corinthians, what you get the sense of is that he was so well-known that there was many that said, man, Apollos is a far more powerful man than Paul. I follow Apollos, some of them said. There was something radical that took place in his life when he was instructed in the way of God more accurately. Second example. That example ends and immediately comes the second example. If all we had was that one isolated example without all of the Verses and the distinctions that I've said to you at the beginning of this message and without the example that I'm going to follow this with, we could say, well, maybe the reason that Apollos has talked about there is that he's going to become an influential man. And so Luke, being a good historian, is going to give some background on him and get us informed about who this guy is. But compared or Coupling that with the story that immediately follows and all of that information that I just gave you makes it, to me, in my mind, undeniable, unarguable that there is a key point that the author is trying to make. And it's the point that he makes immediately again in the very next story. Acts chapter 19. Paul and the 12 disciples. Paul is passing through Ephesus now and he comes along 12 and the scripture calls them disciples. He comes along 12 disciples. That word disciples used there in the New Testament in the Greek is always used in every other instance that it's used. It's referring to true believers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, passing through Ephesus, Paul comes upon 12 disciples, 12 believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to read something in here, but I don't think it's a stretch. Paul must have noticed something because he asked them a question. Verse 2, and Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now that would just be an awkward question just to come up and just kind of pop out of the box. I think Paul spent a little time with them and I think he noticed what Aquila and Priscilla noticed. There is something missing. And his question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Man, we could talk a long time about that right there. Would he ask that question if there was no way that they could affirmatively answer it? Like, how would I know? 
Must be a way of knowing. And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into what? There it is again. Into John's baptism. And he said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is in Jesus. Hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, period. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Do you see the two baptisms there? Again, the distinction that was stated at the beginning of Luke's gospel, at the beginning of John's gospel, in the statements of John the Baptist as he began his ministry, in the beginning of Acts of the Apostles, Jesus himself stating the distinction between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism here in Acts 19. Folks, 18. Acts 18 and 19, this is 20 years at least after the preaching of John the Baptist. 20 years at least after the preaching of John the Baptist. And the question is, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No. Into what then were you baptized? Into John's baptism. And Paul says, there's another one. That's not all there is. Apollos, that's not all there is. Did you notice what was missing in Apollos' ministry, even though he was given that list of six incredible accolades, did you notice the statement that indicated what he was missing? It's the same thing. It says, though he knew only the baptism of John. What's he saying there? The author is saying, He knew about the first baptism. He knew about the baptism of water that John gave toward repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But there's another baptism that Jesus does. It's another baptism that Jesus does. And it's not a baptism of water. It's the baptism that Jesus does when he pours out or baptizes his followers with his Holy Spirit. So this back-to-back placement of these stories inspired by the Holy Spirit himself to be written, compiled with all of the other incidences where the distinction is made so pointedly, there is clearly a message that the Spirit of God is trying to get across here that is undeniable in my mind. It's unmistakable. And that is 
that there is a baptism of John, a baptism of water unto the forgiveness of sins. It's a baptism of repentance. But in addition to that, there is a baptism that Jesus does, a work that he accomplishes. And that work is him pouring out his spirit upon his people. And the point is this. The point is this. That God's intent, A, and B, our great need, and C, the world's great need, is that we would have them both. They are desperately needed. That we are stopping short of what God has for us if we stop at the baptism of John. Isn't that clear from the repetitive story after story, particularly these two given back to back, that God is saying through His Spirit in His Word, don't stop at the first baptism. Don't believe that is all there is. Don't settle for a life that just receives forgiveness and then just hangs out and limps along until Jesus returns. There's something else. There is the plan of Jesus and that is this. He came that you would have life and have it to the half. No. He came that you would have life and have it to the full. He came that you would experience the fullness of his life. Grace unto grace. That's what John said at the beginning of his gospel. You see... Ladies, oh, I hope I can share this right. Ladies and gentlemen, what the world so desperately needs, what the world is dying and going to hell because of the lack of, is this Right here. The world is not going to be impressed if they see us with an upgrade or two in an ethical structure for life. They're not going to be impressed if they see that we have a little bit of improvement over them. They're going to look at our life and they're going to say, and I'm afraid that they often look at the evangelical church and they say, what is the difference? As I look at your life and I look at my life, what's the big difference? What you have is a few more commitments on the weekend of an hour or two. But you don't live any different than I do. What in the world do I want to dive into those hoops and make those commitments? You're just like me. You see, the world doesn't need religion. 
Nor does the world need us just to be professors and believers in Christ. Here's what the world needs. The world needs followers of Christ who have the truth of Acts 1.8. Do you know what Acts 1.8 says? Here, folks, is the focus of this 22 days right here. It's this verse right here. I can't get this verse out of my mind. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Let's just break that down for a minute. What's the first statement? What's the first guarantee that's in part A of that verse? It is this, that if you have the Holy Spirit poured out upon you, or if you want to use the term, are baptized with, Jesus does this work, what's going to be true of your life? Power. Do you see any loophole in here of getting around that? Is that most of the time, 90% of the time, or is that just a blanket statement across the board? Holy Spirit poured out power. I mean, read it again. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. It doesn't even say at some time in the future. It says you will receive when. You will receive when. Now, here's the second truth to draw out of that that, to me, is just, again, it's not something that you can script out of the verse. That everyone that has the Spirit poured out upon them or everyone that receives this baptism of Jesus with the Spirit, they are not only going to have power, but that power is not an end of itself. Please understand that. It's kind of half of the equation here. That power is not an end in of itself. It's not to brush their knuckles and polish their buttons and show how great they are. This power is not about them at all. If anybody tries to use that power for that reason, they are completely abusing the purpose. It's not for sensationalism. It's not for a show. It's for one purpose and one purpose only. And what is it, church? It's to witness to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the power. Now, here's the... And kind of the same equation that we did with the first half of the verse. How many people that have the power of the Spirit come upon them, do you read in this verse, will do the second half of the verse? What's the percentage? I don't see any way but to say that it is every single one. There is no loophole given here that says some of them who get this power will be my witness. No, Jesus said... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. 
So diagnostic question, can we backtrack and examine our own life? Would this be fair to ask? Or use as a searchlight into our own heart? If we are not witnessing for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about in these four walls right here. I'm talking about in the world in which we live, where the lost are. If we are not witnessing for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, what could you safely say from that verse that we are not living in? I would say it's the power of the Spirit. Because if you have the power of the Spirit, you will be His witness. So if none of that is evident in your life, it would be a good searchlight to your heart. Time for some examination. Let's go on. What I want to do now is, having stated this concept, shown multiple places where this very intentional distinction is made and repeated over and over again about the distinction between John the Baptist's baptism and the baptism of Jesus. What I want to do is I want to draw some principles from that large overarching truth. Three. And church, by the way, you know, this, this stuff is not as, as is true every week in every pulpit in every location on the planet. None of this is new. This is not new. If somebody's sharing something brand new, you really need to be listening closely and checking your scripture. It's the truth once delivered to the saints. So don't, I'm, um, I'm not trying to be profound here. I'm just trying to be orthodox and accurate and faithful to what I see as so plain on the pages of Scripture here. Here's the first principle I draw from that. And I don't like the word very well, I'm looking for a new word, uh, but um, I think I can get the idea across. But the principle is this. There are levels in the Christian life. Or there are stages. Or there are steps of uh, new places of growth. I don't just mean that we grow in our sanctification. I mean there there is a place here and then there's a place here. Now, I want to be very careful in, in using the terms, here's where it breaks down, levels and stages. <clears throat> if we ever use that term, like levels, level one, level two. If we are ever using that term to talk about our position regarding somebody else's position, 
then we have completely misused it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you as a Christian before God. That's the only time I believe you have the right to walk through that. And that is, there is this initial level, this baptism of John, this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then there is another level, there is another stage, there's another development of a baptism that Jesus Christ performs that John the Baptist said he would perform, that Luke said he would perform, that John the Apostle said he would perform, that Jesus himself said he would perform and did perform. That's the first principle I think we can draw from this, is that these stages in the Christian life. Now, I think that there are many locations, not just the ones that I've shared, but many locations in Scripture where that can be pointed out. Apollos is such a prime example. And immediately following Apollos are the twelve, another prime example. What did they both initially have? The baptism of John. What they needed was the baptism of Jesus. They needed the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon them. That's what Aquila and Priscilla noticed in Apollos' life. That's what Paul noticed in the life of the 12 disciples in Ephesus. That's what John the Baptist himself said needed to happen. Yeah, I'm doing this. It's good. You need to be baptized. But there's another. There's another. It's coming. And he has a something else, something far greater. So what happens there in Acts 19 is that Paul notices that there's something missing. And so he explains to them what is missing. And then he puts his hands upon them and he prays over them and Jesus Christ fulfills the promise and does the work of pouring out his spirit upon that group of 12. And just like Apollos, they are changed. Read the end of the story. They're changed. Now, It is proper and good and should always, I believe, be the process. We should begin with the biblical example. Folks, this is our authority. Do you believe that? This is the very words of the living God. It's not just Paul's authority for life and mine as the preacher. It's yours. Whether you buy into it or not, it is the authority. And one day, your life is going to be held up next to this truth right here. And all of your eternity is going to be dependent upon how your life lined up to the truth. It's not going to be rewritten. It's the truth once delivered to the saints that we have right here in our hands. 
It's your job, your responsibility, your great privilege in life to have the Word of God and to look into it regularly and learn about God's intent for your life, His great blessings and promises and protections. But not only do we have these biblical examples, we could complement these now with a secondary, with some historical examples. Because there has now been 2,000 years of history. And you know what? There is example after example that highlight the very same truth that we're talking about here. I'm just going to use two. And I'm going to select two that are from the conservative vein. I mean, that's those that would be maybe reluctant to embrace the truth of what I'm talking about. The first is John Wesley. Ever heard of John Wesley? John Wesley, incredible man of God that changed a nation. Whose impact so many years after his death is still influencing many. John Wesley was on the ship going across the pond. And he was on the ship with a bunch of Moravians. And as he was crossing the sea, they encountered some serious storm and their lives were threatened. And John Wesley was a believer. John Wesley was even a preacher. But John Wesley looked at their lives. And John Wesley noticed something that he couldn't put his finger on. But he noticed it. There is something different about those people right there. He tells the story himself. And so he got into a dialogue with them, and they explained the difference to him. It's the same distinction that we have been talking about right here this morning. He heard and he believed intellectually, but he had not experienced it. And then when he landed on the shore, sometime later he went to a meeting at Aldersgate. I believe the Luther's preface to Romans was being read and he would write those famous words in his journal that as he heard the reading his heart was strangely warmed and the Spirit of God came upon him. Here's what John Wesley initially said. The change was so radical and transformational. John Wesley said, that's when I got saved, right then. But later, as he grew in his spiritual maturity, he retracted that and said, I didn't get saved there. I was already saved. I had believed in Jesus. I was already justified. But what happened there is the Spirit of God came on me. You see, he would say then later, what I had on the boat, what I had talking to the Moravians, what I had before that was I had the faith of a slave. 
But what happened to me in that Aldersgate meeting is I got the faith of a child. I went to a, could I say it? I went to a new level. I went to a new stage. I went to a new place in my Christian experience. The second example from history is the most poignant in my mind because of who it comes from. It comes from very conservative Baptist preacher. The most famous Baptist preacher of all of history. The man who some 300 years later we still call the Prince of Preachers. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Martin Lloyd-Jones, writing about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, says this, that Mr. Spurgeon believed that the change between being saved, i.e. the baptism of John unto repentance for the forgiveness of sins, And what took place when the Spirit of God came upon a believer, that that change is greater than the change between an unsaved person getting saved. Wow! Now, I think I understand what he is referring to. I believe he's talking about an experiential or a visible change in a person's life, that the difference between a person being unsaved and getting saved, yes, there's a change, but when it really gets radical is when the individual that is saved, having received the baptism of John unto repentance for the forgiveness of sins, when that person has the Spirit of God poured out on them, there is a change so radical that it eclipses what is noticed in the life of the unbeliever getting saved. Conservative Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Oh, and there are many other examples. The point, though, is this. Here's the first truth, the first encouragement, the first warning. Church, don't settle for less than what God wants for you. Don't stop at the baptism of John. Don't settle for anything short of the power of God being poured out on your life. This experience of living out of the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This life of abundance that Jesus Christ came to give you. 
Don't settle. And what I'm afraid is that so many in the evangelical church have stopped at the baptism of John. That many of them could even say, maybe not literally, but certainly in principle, I haven't even really heard about the Holy Spirit. I haven't even really heard. Yeah, I know his name is dropped occasionally, but really I don't even understand how he fits in. You see, folks, there is no indication in Scripture that, it, that the 12 were wicked. That's why they didn't have the Spirit. That's not the indication. That's not the indication with Paulus. He was a... Man, he was competent and eloquent and fervent and bold. What they needed was instruction. What they needed was for somebody to tell them the truth. That's what they needed. And when the truth was disseminated and their hearts received that, they came into the experience of it. So if this is new to you, I'm not asking you to take, and take my words at face value. I'm asking you, doesn't that, doesn't the word of God so clearly say what I'm saying several times? Emphasizing and repeating from multiple influential characters, including the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That there is a baptism of John, a water baptism unto repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then there is a baptism that Jesus Christ works. And that baptism is when he pours out his spirit upon his people. And we're supposed to have both. Now, let me just clarify here. Here is, this is why this helps me. Words are very critical to me. Words communicate a meaning. And the business that I'm in, the calling that I'm in, I'm not, folks, I'm not doing this to put money in the bank. I'm dealing with the words of God here. And I am, I shake in my boots sometimes to think that I am supposed to stand before you every week and say, this is what God says. I better do my best to get it right. Words are important. That's why this really helps me, help me understand this. The, the terms are used so loosely. Uh, 
the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that phrase being used, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, meant to refer to this second thing that I'm talking about here. That's a wrong term in my mind. That's confusing. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the work of salvation. Corinthians says that, that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, what the Spirit of God does is that he baptizes you into Jesus Christ. That's justification. That's salvation. That's a work of the Spirit in which he takes the atoning work of Jesus Christ and he applies it to your life. That's the baptism of the Spirit, I believe, correctly understood biblically. There is... One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's what that's talking about right there. That's salvation. There's one of those. But that is not all there is in the Christian life. And we are falling short or settling short of what Jesus Christ intends for us if that's where we stop. Because what Jesus wants is he wants to do what John said in the very beginning of his gospel. He wants to pour out his Holy Spirit. He wants to baptize us in his spirit. It's what Luke said. He wants to baptize us with the spirit and with fire. He wants us to come in and live in the very fullness of his life. He wants abundance for us. New life and life in abundance. That's the plan. I'm not, I'm not even saying get hung up on the term. Baptism that Jesus does when he, pour, when he baptizes followers with the Spirit or Jesus pouring out his Spirit on his people. I, I'm not getting hung up. I think those two are used interchangeably in the New Testament in several occasions. But the point I'm just making is this. What Jesus' intent for us is, is that he would give us in great power his spirit for the purpose of being his witnesses in a dying world bound for hell. That's the point. And that if we fall short of that, we are not only missing out on this great blessing, this radical transformation, but the world around us is dying and going to hell because they look at us and they don't see any radical change. They don't see anything out of this world that would cause them to go, how did that happen? What is that? What's going on over there? What's taking place in their life? That's something I can't explain. That's something that's beyond my understanding. And as I see it, beyond their ability, something is there that is otherworldly. I got to find out what that is. You see, that's the purpose of the power. It is to bring them to the place to open their eyes and open their ears and soften their heart so they would listen to the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. So, well, that took a long time to hit that one point. 
There are levels. There are stages. Here's the second principle I think we can draw from this distinction. And it's this. You can be a Christian and still be lacking a lot. Let me say that again. You can be a Christian and still be lacking a lot. Think of the great example we just looked at. Apollos. Oh, man, Apollos' life hits me like a freight train. Let me just recap. He was eloquent. He spoke well. He was a an effective communicator. He was competent in the Scripture, a studied man in the Scriptures in the Old Testament of his day. He knew the truth of the Word of God. But not only that, he was instructed in the way of the Lord. He knew the truth of the gospel, the foundational principles of justification by faith alone through Christ alone. He was instructed in that and believed it. But not only that, not only that, he was fervent. He was a pedal to the metal guy out there just ready to talk about Jesus Christ. Not only that, he was courageous. He was in the synagogue teaching when he had the opportunity, proclaiming Christ. Man, this guy was a stud as a Christian. Would you not see that? Man, I look at that and say, at least in some aspect, That's me. That's me. That could just be describing my life right there. Would Aquila and Priscilla sit where you're sitting this morning and afterwards come and pull me aside and say, Brad, You've got accurate truth about Jesus. But we need to teach you the way of God more accurately. You see, what was missing clearly identified in the story of Apollos in the midst of his six noteworthy qualifications, right in the middle, there's this statement. But he knew only the baptism of John. There it is. What was missing is that he had got to step one and had not went to the next step. He knew only the baptism of, not his fault, It's all he knew. The point is this. Man, you can be a Christian and still lack a lot. And here's the final point. And it's the one that I've made many times. It'll be apparent. The great need, the key that makes the great difference in the Christian life, in the Christian life, Is Jesus Christ baptizing you or pouring out his spirit upon your life so that the very power of God comes down into your life? That's the difference.
That's the difference. So what about our response? First of all, what we have to be just like Apollos, just like the twelve, we have to believe that there is a distinction. We have to believe what the Scripture is saying. We have to believe that there is a baptism of John and a repentance for the forgiveness of sin, but that there's something else that Jesus wants to do. There is an outpouring of the Spirit that He wants to bring into our lives. If we don't believe that, we're never going to pursue that. We're never going to call out to God fervently for that. We're never going to wait on God until it happens. We got to believe it first. We have to have somebody bring us the teaching. And that's what I'm trying to do to you this morning. That's what I'm trying to set up as we move into the next 22 days is that we first of all have to see and believe in the distinction. then what do we need to do? If you are one that has no individual personal knowledge or experience of that outpouring of the Spirit on your life, then what an incredible example we have right here. Apollos! Apollos is, man, I love this story. Do you see what he does? He is eloquently, competently, accurately, fervently, courageously preaching the truth about Jesus Christ in the synagogue. And he gets done. And here comes the little tent maker and his wife. Paulus, can we talk to you? Pull him aside. Maybe bring him into their home. And they say to him, there's something missing in your life. There's something available that you don't have. And what we need to do is to teach you the way of God more accurately. And can you imagine the temptation from this eloquent, educated, biblically schooled, bold, fervent, courageous man... What in the world do you have to say to me? You're a tent maker. I think it's even fair to at least note the possibility that the one who is doing the majority of the teaching is the wife because every time the couple's names are given, 
Her name is given first. So here is the tent maker's wife, Priscilla and Aquila, saying to this incredibly educated, eloquent communicator who accurately teaches truth boldly and fervently, you're missing something. And here's what he does. Oh, that we would be willing to do this right here. I see four things so clear in his life. First of all, he's honest. He doesn't say, ah, no, I've got that and try to script it in. He doesn't try to feign a knowledge of something. He does. he's, not, he's obviously honest with them. They point it out and he says, you know what? I don't have that. I don't know what you're talking about. That's something beyond my understanding. He's honest with them. Even them, the tent maker's wife and her husband. Not only is he honest, he was teachable. He was teachable. You know what he was willing to do? He was willing to hear truth regardless of the source from which it came. Be it a tent maker's wife, be it Balaam's donkey, be it whoever, he just wanted the truth. He was honest and he was teachable. And then here's maybe the overarching principle, principle number three. He had to be a humble guy. Oh, he had to be a humble guy to take that advice. Having just stepped out of the pulpit to take that advice from a tent maker and his wife. Yet he took it. He took it. And he believed it. And he received it. And he experienced it. Humility. But if humility is the overarching principle, there is a foundational principle number four that I see that had to be true. And it's this. And here's what I'm challenging you with. Apollos wanted all that God had for him. He wanted the whole package. He was not satisfied with the status quo. He was not willing to say, oh, I've got enough. I'm comfortable. I'm going to just keep on trucking along the way I'm going. He said, man, if there is something more, if there's power available that I don't have, I want all that Christ died and rose again and is trying to get into my life. Teach me, show me, I want it all. And what I'm asking you to do with me as a church is I'm asking you to take that posture and for the next 22 days to say, as Apollos must have said, and felt, oh, I want all that God wants of me. 
Lord, don't let me stop short of your full plan. Give me the power of your spirit for the purpose of an effective life changing community transforming witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do that in me. God, do that in this church. If that is already you, you would pray and beg God to do that on a church-wide scale. That's our plan. That's our quest here. So I'm inviting you to come back tonight. And then the following three Wednesday nights. And then that last Sunday night, I believe it's the 29th. In addition to our Sunday mornings, those five meetings as we pray and seek the face of God together and seek the reality of Acts 1-8 in the life of our church. If you come back tonight, I'll give you some more instruction. Talk about fasting, encouraging you to participate in fasting in some capacity as we pray through this for the next 22 days. We'll have some prayer time together, uh, leader-led prayer, and then we'll have some breakout groups of prayer and some worship time. We come back and seek God with me, with us. Would you please stand? Father, I just, I just commit, Lord, the... the next three weeks into your capable hands. I have no script, Lord. No vision at all for what I think needs to happen. I just believe you're calling us to do this. And so, Lord, I want to be obedient. I want to be obedient. Have your way in us, Lord. Have your way in me. Have your way in us. Pour out your spirit upon us in power unto witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. His name I pray, amen.